And if you would, turn with me now to our sermon text, which does come once again today from the book of Jude. Jude, of course, just one chapter, so we don't know the chapter, but we will be looking this morning at Jude verses 20 and 21. So hear now the word of the Lord, Jude, verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. Let's end the reading of God's holy word and let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning once again for the opportunity to sit ourselves at the foot of your word and to hear all that you have for us in this place. Lord, I do pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word to us and that you would help the truth of this word in conjunction with all that we've seen so far and will see from this book of Jude to really store up in this church for generations to come the things that we have been looking at in Jude this year. And Lord, we do pray in a special way today that you would give us wisdom and enthusiasm to what it mean, for what it means for us to keep ourselves safe in your love. And we do pray all of these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we do return this morning to our study through the book of Jude. And with it, we come today to the second of three primary ways that Christians are able to defend themselves or defend the faith from the attack of false teaching. Now, last week I took some extra time to lay out the whole structure of this book in order to really place us in the proper context of where we are in the book of Jude. So I would encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, go back and listen to that because it really does go in with what we're looking at today and, Lord willing, what we'll see next week. But there is one thing that I think is very important to repeat as we start our sermon here today. If you remember, the whole reason that Jude has written this book is recorded for us back in verse 3. So look with me back at verse 3. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith or contend for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to His holy people. You see, if you remember, we said a number of times, contending for the faith or defending the faith is not something that we do outside the church. We evangelize those outside the church. We defend the faith. We contend for the faith with those inside the church. And verses 5 to 16 show us why we must do that. Because if we are lazy or apathetic towards that central calling on all Christians, then a great amount of filth will enter the church through false teaching and immoral living that we saw laid out in those four sermons. We spent four sermons wading through the mess that false teachers bring with them into the church and the threat that they pose to the body of believers. And that was important because it set the stage for verses 17 to 23, 
which in a real sense is actually completing the point that Jude began to make way back in verse 3. We see laid out for us in verses 17 to 23, three very clear things that all Christians are charged to do as we contend for the faith, as we defend the faith. Now, the first of those three we saw last week. It was that we must listen to the apostles, an implication to the Old Testament authors of Scripture as well. We cannot contend for the faith if we do not listen to exactly what the inspired writers of Scripture have given us, and more importantly even, let those teachings penetrate deep into our hearts. So that is where we must begin, but that is not where we end. There is a second move, a second step to how we contend for the faith. It is built on that first one, but it is really a next step forward. So in conjunction with last week's sermon, we have two main points today. Point number one, the second defense against false teaching is to keep ourselves safe in God's love. The second defense against false teaching is to keep ourselves safe in God's love. And point number two, we keep ourselves safely in God's love only within a community. We keep ourselves safely in God's love only within a community. So let's get started. Point number one, the second defense against false teaching is to keep ourselves safe in God's love. And we actually see this at the end of verse 21. So this is, is kind of something different than we normally do. We're actually beginning this sermon with where our verses end. And there's a reason for that, and it involves a very brief Greek lesson. So y'all stick with me here because it's actually an important component to how we see this. Peter Davids accurately says, grammatically, Jude's only imperative in these two verses is to, quote, keep yourselves in God's love. There are three participial clauses that modify this command, telling them how to live it out. One, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Two, praying in the Spirit. And three, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Possibly all four are to be read as commands. That is the so-called imperatival use of the participle. But if so, we must still keep in mind that the one true imperative is the core of the sentence and thus the central command. Okay, now before you glaze over, there's not going to be a quiz on what the imperatival use of the participle is in Greek. But it's important actually to how we understand these verses. So to say all that another way, the Greek sentence structure makes very clear that there is one central command... With it, there are three other commands that serve to explain the main central command. Okay, so when we see this in the Greek, we need to begin with the central command, which is at the end of verse 21. So I'll give an example here. All right, let's say you're sitting in class, and for many adults in here, you're long past that day of sitting in class, and you've got no desire to do it again. But just think back to sitting in class, and a professor gives you the syllabus, and he says four commands, right? He tells you, you must complete all the work for this course satisfactorily. Passing a final exam, writing a coherent paper, 
and completing all your readings. You see, in that example, the main command is for you to complete the work for the course. But if that's all you were told, you might be confused as to what the work for the course really is. So then you have three more commands that explain the first. You got to pass the exam, you got to write a good paper, and you've got to complete your readings. So you see four commands, but the last three serve to explain the first, which is you must complete the coursework satisfactorily. And that's close to what's going on here. Our building, our praying, our waiting, they are three commands, but they're three commands that actually serve to serve the one central command, which is for us to keep ourselves safe in God's love. It's as if we would be confused about that command if we did not have the other three. So let's begin with that central statement, and then our second point will give us the other three, okay? So the end of verse 21, in this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. Now, this is quite the command, isn't it? I would wager a guess that this is not normally the way that we think about the love of God. In fact, we would probably think about God being the one who keeps us safe in His love. So this seems to run contradictory a little bit to how we understand that. In fact, look at how the book begins and ends here in Jude. This is important. In verse 1, we read that Jude is writing to those who have been called by God the Father, who loves us and keeps us safe in the care of Jesus Christ. So who is it that is keeping us safe in God's love in verse 1? It's God, isn't it? He's the one keeping us safe. Then look at the end of the book, verse 24. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy in His glorious presence without a single fault. So who's the one keeping us safe in God's love at the end of the book? God. He's the one doing it. So we see that Jude is making clear both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book that it is God ultimately who keeps us safe in His love and that He is able to keep us and preserve us in that love until the day He brings us into His glorious presence without a single fault. It is ultimately all the work of God and Jude wants us to see that. That's how he opens his book and that's how he closes his book. And by the way, that's one reason our benediction for this whole sermon series has been the opening and closing of this book. So we need to see, ultimately, God is the one keeping us safe in His love. And yet, verse 21, we are called also to keep ourselves safe in God's love. That sounds like the exact opposite, doesn't it? But it's actually Jude following with his big brother, Jesus. So, Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 9. He says, now you remain in my love. Douglas Moo notes about that. He says, Christ loves us unconditionally, yet we have the obligation to remain within his love for us. To say that another way, the fact that God keeps us safe in his love does not mean that we don't also have the obligation to keep ourselves safe in the love of God, for us to remain in His love. 
Now, I think what is helpful for me here is to think of the parable of the prodigal son. I think that's a parable that most of us are very familiar with. When you think back to that example, remember, the younger brother disowns his father and foolishly runs away from home with his half of the inheritance, which is essentially telling his father, I wish you were dead. He takes that half of the inheritance, and then as he runs away, he begins to squander it. But the first question here is, does the father ever stop loving his son? He does not. He goes out continually looking and watching for his son to return home. His father continues to love his son deeply. And yet, while the son is away, and even as his father is continuing to love him, does the son have the experience of his father's love? He does not. He doesn't even know that his father is continuing to love him. He is being foolish and wild and living an immoral and ungodly life, by the way, very similar to these, what these false teachers are encouraging members of the flock to do. And he even convinces himself that his father must not love him anymore, that he could never return home as a beloved son, and he just hopes when he returns home to be a servant in his father's house. But what happens when he returns home? The father's love, which never ceased to be present, is able to really extend to his son in an experiential way. And the son is now once again abiding in the love of his father, a love which never ceased. So the father's love never wavered, but the son's abiding in that love and experiencing the safety of that love was dependent on him remaining with his father. We said back in our second sermon from verses 3 and 4, an important statement about this, which actually anticipated where we are here today. You see, God loves his children deeply. And yet the love of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is accessible to us through only one place. And that place is the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He is where the love of God in humanity abides perfectly. And he is where the love of God is held out to us. So for anyone to live life apart from Christ is to freely choose to abide outside the love of God for them. Now that does not mean that a true child of God is ever not loved. But it does mean that while indulging in ungodly and immoral living, like what the false teachers are encouraging, that person is choosing not to abide in the safety of God's love. So maybe the best way to put it would be this, to summarize all that. Either we are keeping ourselves safe in God's love, or we are freely choosing to place ourselves in danger apart from God's love. Those are the two options that we have before us. We all have the choice as children of God, kept by God in his perfect love for all of eternity, to either live our lives in the safety of God's love or to choose to place our lives in danger apart from God's love. What the false teachers have said is that because God loves them, then they do not need to worry about how they live their lives. But that is patently false. 
And so this second critical way that Christians are to contend for the faith is by ensuring that we keep ourselves in the safety of God's love. Now, step three next week, which we'll see in depth, will have to do with us rescuing those who have been tricked, those who have been fooled by false teachers. But extremely importantly, before we can begin to engage in that work, we have to first ensure that we are keeping ourselves safe in God's love so that we don't begin to put ourselves in danger by living apart from the love of God. Okay, so at this point, I hope you understand simply the main command, even if you don't understand exactly how to do that yet. That's actually normal, because remember my example of the professor and the student. If all the professor said was complete the work for this course satisfactorily and didn't tell us what the work for the course was, we would be confused. So similarly here, what we've gotten is just the central command. So at this point, my only question for each of us is this, to ask yourself, do I desire to keep myself safe in God's love? Do I desire to both come to Christ and equally importantly, to abide with Christ, to remain with Christ? remain in his love for you if not then that's the challenge that's issued to you it's the evangelistic call to be able to see the message of the gospel all over again and to be invited back like the prodigal son to return to the lord who loves you and desires you to come experience his love and the safety that it brings with it and if you do desire that then we are ready for the other three commands so point number two, we keep ourselves safely in God's love only within community. So we see this in verses 20 and 21, so I'll read the whole passage for us again. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. <clears throat> now, there's one common thread throughout each of these first three commands, and it's that they all must be done in a gospel-driven community. There is a decisively communal aspect to all three of these commands. This is to say, if you read these three commands and think that this is something you can do as an individual Christian— apart from a local community of believers, then you've already started off wrong. <clears throat> because remember, this is all about contending for the faith within the church community. And we get that clearly at the opening of verse 20, where Jude calls us again his dear friends, translated beloved. So if you've been with us, you remember that's how he started verse 17, which connected us all the way back to what he said in verse 3. This is the third time Jude loves threes. He loves trifectas. This is the third time we've seen this come up. <clears throat> so we see that each supporting command has to do with the community of faith. So let's take just a few minutes on each of these three commands. First, we see the command for us to build each other up in our most holy faith. And again, this is a direct connection to what Jude said in verse 3. Remember back in verse 3, he called us to defend the faith. 
not our subjective faith, but the faith, right? The faith once passed down to all generations of Christians. Douglas Moo says, as in verse 3, faith here means what Christians believe, the doctrinal and ethical core of Christian identity. This is what the false teachers were threatening. Therefore, true believers must devote themselves to the faith with renewed dedication. Okay, to say that another way, we live in a very wishy-washy, evangelical Christian world where many Christians believe that the way to grow in Christ is to just become more happy and more passive, right? This is where we get the idea of let go and let God. Let go and let God, which becomes the mantra of this thought. But man, and and y'all, I don't want to be too harsh here, but what a wicked statement of false teaching to actually embrace. And by the way, let this serve as an example of how much false teaching we actually really do battle against within the church without knowing it. Maybe you've thought in the sermon series, I don't know that I hear false teaching, but this right here is an example of it. You see, let go and let God is to rightly acknowledge that God keeps us safe in his love. Amen. They get that part right. But they completely reject the idea that we need to keep ourselves safe in God's love too. To let go is to cease from active pursuit of living life. It's to become passive instead of actively living life with intentionality and boldness and courage and decision making. It's actually a way of making God responsible for anything in our life that goes badly. That's the foundation of it. To actually take ourselves out of responsibility and to make God responsible for anything that goes poorly. Because this mantra will allow us to say, hey, God, I let go and I let you run my life and look at where I am. It puts him in responsibility. It seems attractive to let go and let God, but oftentimes those people end up the most bitter against the Lord because they blame him for things that could have been avoided had they been more active and courageous in keeping themselves in God's love. Which is right at the core of this first command. We are called to build each other up in the most holy faith. And we do this in community. We are called to actually encourage one another to take hold of the faith. Not to be passive and let go, but we are encouraging one another. Yes, let God lead, but you take hold with more active pursuit and boldness and courage than you have in the past. To take hold of the objective Christian faith written down in the Word of God and written on our new hearts. We are called to encourage one another to stop letting go of life and start actively taking hold of it, specifically by building our lives on the solid foundation of the historical Christian faith. Not on a subjective experience of it, but on the real faith written down in God's Word intended to be the foundation for our lives. Now that's a big task, isn't it? And so it's good. That's not the only task that we have here. We know that we need something else as we engage in this. We, of course, need prayer. But we don't need wishy-washy prayer or unintelligible prayer. We need 
powerful prayer. Praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the next command we get. Now, this is a very well-known verse within charismatic circles. If you came from a charismatic or Pentecostal background, you may remember the book of Jude for this verse. This is actually one of the primary verses that they will claim speaks about true believers praying in the power of the Spirit, which to them means praying in tongues. Something they would say is a largely indiscernible language to us, which they would say makes it of more value because though we can't understand it, the Lord understands it and knows. But that clearly cannot be what Jude means. Listen to what commentator Gene Green has to say. Some have suggested that Jude may have in mind speaking in tongues, an interpretation of the text that is especially known in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. But in this section, however, Jude's concern is with the corporate life of the church in their collective struggle against heresy, and given the problem within the Corinthian church regarding speaking in tongues, which is that you couldn't understand it, it's hard to imagine how such a call would contribute to the church's corporate life. So to say that another way, we have to remember the essence of what Jude is doing here. He is writing so that the church community can keep themselves in God's love. We do this by building each other up in the most holy faith and by praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. There must be very clear and discernible things for the church at large. So this cannot be something that doesn't actually help Christians understand their growth in the faith, understand their connection to the objective biblical faith. You see, this verse is actually all about the community of faith together, sharing their burdens, their trials, their difficulties with one another, and then very importantly, to pray for one another with real words, with real words that others can hear them pray, with real words that they can then see the responses to those prayers come about. The prayers are always in the power of the Spirit, which means these prayers are actually accomplishing something solid. Christians being prayed for are able to know that the prayers of their brothers and sisters are producing something worthwhile, something tangible. Those engaged are able to see the Lord's clear answers to their discernible prayers, and that serves to help keep them safe in the love of God. So let me say here, this is why our Tuesday night prayer meeting is one of the most important staples of life at Village Presbyterian Church. We have one set-apart time every week with an invitation for all of the community of believers at Village Pres to gather together and for all the community at Village Pres to send in their prayer requests and to know that your specific covenant community, however many people show up or however few, that they are coming together to pray on your behalf in the power of the Holy Spirit for the things that will keep you safe in the love of God. They are real prayers with real words that we understand. You see, to really pray in the power of the Spirit is to pray those requests which serve to keep us safe in God's love not primarily things that bring worldly blessing or prosperity. 
Okay? Not that those are wrong things to pray for, but I get the question sometimes, what is it to pray in the power of the Spirit? Right? The power of the Spirit is to pray for the things that keep us safe in God's love. Does that make sense? Right? We can pray for other things too, but that is the context of what Jude is bringing to us here. So a real application here is to see how essential our weekly prayer meeting is to this particular community of faith being built up and kept safely in the love of God at Village. And I would encourage everyone in here to make a point that when you have important requests, that you would share that with, with me, with us, that we could bring that to our Tuesday night Bible study and prayer meeting, to know that that is a staple of the church. And for everyone at the church to really think about how you might could regularly be engaged in our Tuesday night prayer meeting. Maybe that's just coming once a quarter, the first Tuesday of each quarter to pray through the totality of the church. Maybe it's coming once a month. Maybe it's to make that, in essence, your small group that you're coming to meet together on that Tuesday night. But that is one of the most important corporate things we do. So I want to encourage you in that. But it is not exhausted in that meeting. It also means that we have essential prayers for one another that go on through the weeks as well. Our prayers as a session that have particular power of the Spirit. Our prayers as small groups that meet. We've got one right now as they're praying for one another. Prayers in the counseling room or as we're sharing our burdens with one another over coffee or lunch. Or just your prayers at night of knowing the burdens within this church. This is to pray in the power of the Spirit for the things that keep safe those at our congregation. To reject this call to pray for one another is to neglect one of the essential ways we are to keep ourselves safe. Which leads then to the final command here. We build each other up and we pray in the power of the Spirit, and through it all, we do it with our eyes set squarely on one primary place. That is the last command. We await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. What is the hardest aspect of trying to keep ourselves in the love of God? When are we most tempted to move ourselves away from that? It is when our eyes are not squarely set on the wonderful mercy of eternal life that Jesus is bringing when he returns. The false teachers have lost sight of that. And so Judas reminded them over and over again that when judgment comes, judgment will be theirs when Jesus comes. But now he's encouraging us to remember when Jesus comes, for those who are truly believers, judgment is not coming in, in the form of judgment. When Jesus returns, it is his mercy that is coming to us. Mercy of eternal life. For the beloved community of believers, the return of Jesus means us receiving the fullness of this mercy. It is a guaranteed mercy that brings us eternal life. We just must wait for it to come. And the Greek word here is one used of us waiting for that final day of Jesus' return. You see, the clear calling is to wait with a certain hope for the guaranteed mercy that is even now being kept for us by God through Jesus Christ. So we are keeping ourselves in God's love when we are patiently looking with all hope to the certain mercy that is to come. And here is the thing. Let me ask Aren't we so tempted to give ourselves to immoral living that false teaching promotes when our eyes are taken off of that? 
we begin to lose hope. We begin to lose faith. We begin to live outside of that love when our eyes are taken off of that. So we know that left to our own isolated walks with the Lord, we will be all the more tempted to be passively overrun by unhelpful living in this life. So the antidote to that is that we need the community of faith here. We need one another to encourage us to redirect our eyes to the soon-to-come return of Jesus Christ in this gospel-driven community. So brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, I want to challenge our whole congregation, me included, to take seriously this calling for us to do all the things we've seen here this morning together as a body. We need one another. And the vows we've taken before God inside this community is the promise to do the things we've worked through in these verses. It's the promise to do these things, to build one another up, to pray for one another, to redirect our eyes together to the mercy that comes so that we can be kept safe in the love of God. Now, we also have vowed to one another that when we fall, we will rescue one another out of that place. And that will be a sermon for next week, Lord willing. But before we do that, we must make sure that we keep ourselves safely in God's love first. So this is the message of the gospel that everyone is invited this morning to participate in today. If you're not a member of this church and you want a community of faith who professes before you to do these things, then I would encourage you to join our community of faith. This is something we want to commit with you to do alongside you. And if you are someone who hasn't yet given your life to become a slave of Jesus Christ, who loves you and preserves you, and you're still a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil, who hates you and aims to destroy you, then our community here at Village Pres not only wants you to turn to Jesus for salvation, but we also want to commit with you, to you, to help defend the faith and contend for the faith with you to build you up as a maturing Christian because we know we will need you to do the same for us. And if you are a member of this church, then I hope today's sermon and these verses in Jude will be ones that you will ponder on, that you will think about, that you can return to again and again to see a really clear articulation of our calling to one another as a community of faith. You see, how do we contend for the faith here at Village Pres? Well, we must listen to the apostles and the prophets, both the Old and the New Testament, letting their words penetrate deeply into our hearts and drive our living. And second, we must make sure that we collectively keep ourselves safe in God's love by building each other up, praying for one another in the power of the Spirit, and continually directing one another's eyes to the mercy of Christ that is guaranteed to come when he returns. And as we do those things, praise God, we will be ready to extend that mercy to all who have been captured by false teaching, which Lord willing, we will see with clarity and beauty in verses 22 and 23 next Sunday. In the name of the Father, and of the, Holy, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. 
And Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to be able to see the truth of your word here. Lord, there's a lot here and a lot to sink into our hearts and souls. But we pray that you would give us the boldness to be able to keep ourselves safe as a community within your love. Lord, that you would help us to strive with one another to be active in our pursuing of this faith. And Lord, I pray that you would really give all of us in here times throughout this week where we think through the things we've heard this morning. And as we do, that you would have it penetrate into our hearts and souls and cause us, Lord, to take more and more seriously the things that we have seen today. We thank you for your gospel, your grace, and we praise you for all these things. And we pray them all in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.